Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like hog roasts, banjos, and nonchalance. I was at a hog roast at the weekend, which is where that came from. But we could also have profuse apologies, mea culpa, I am truly sorry, I beg your pardon, sire, pray, father, give me your blessing, it is a decade since my last confession, or sad face, teary face, prayer hands, bashful face, bouquet of flowers. In emojis. <laughs> I'm so down with the kids, Sam Willis. That's very good. Uh, just before we go on, uh, nonchalance is a really good idea because it made me wonder whether you could do chalance. Uh, chalance. Which is, is, is that a word? <laughs> so if nonchalance sure. is a word, chalance has to be a word. Anyway, nonchalance is really interesting because I was walking past one of those ubiquitous keep calm and carry on mugs or posters the other day. And um, I thought, oh, well, there's an example of national nonchalance. So, you know, 1939 in preparation for the Second World War, it's a poster intended to raise morale of the British. It's all about uh, the history of the stiff upper lip, uh, self-discipline, fortitude, things like that. Um, so I thought actually nonchalance was surprisingly interesting. And also then you can have like, nonchalance in the face of extreme danger, like the Ukrainians feigning nonchalance or whether it was actually nonchalance before the Russians invaded fairly recently. I've always wondered about about that, about whether they, uh, whether the politicians were feigning nonchalance, saying everything was going to be okay, but knew that the Russians were going to invade. Anyway, I think there's an entire episode on the history of nonchalance. Which we should definitely do. But for the moment, we should be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of frailty is in fact all about the history of old age, loneliness, well-being and medical history via the 17th century English diarist Sarah Cowper. It's also all about the history of accidents. It's about falling off things, stumbling and fatalities. And it's also about the depiction of disabilities in the margins of medieval manuscripts. Of course it is. Uh, or who knew that the history of waiting is in fact all about industrialization, boredom and anxiety. It's about the history of queuing via Winston Churchill, World War II and Margaret Thatcher. It's about power in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it's also all about the history of migration. <laughs> who knew indeed? Mm, fascinating stuff. Let me tell you of my fellow presenter, you're probably wondering who he is and where he is. Well, he's in his study. And that's a good point because we're filming this one. So you can actually watch us on YouTube um, broadcasting from our relative studies. Let me just say that if if uh, if he were an apology from history, he'd be nothing less than the Treaty of Versailles, apologising oh. for the First World War, the biggest and the best apology ever. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello. And you may well be 
be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were an apology-related historian, sorry would not for him be the hardest word. So honourable and valiant <laughs> is he, so chiselled from the granite rock of historical endeavour that the words, I am sorry, would not stick in his craw. No siree, Bob, for the man knows when he's wrong, knows how to make amends with the half-felt utterance, <laughs> my bad. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, very much enjoying this. Um, I like having a camera on. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this, this pans out. Uh, right, apologies. So we're doing apologies primarily uh, to apologise because we've been a little quiet on the podcast production front over the last few months. Um, we've both been very busy. I probably am more uh, at blame than James. I should make that clear. <laughs> You're more apologetic than me. <laughs> I'm more apologetic than James. However, we're back and we, we're back and we're better. We're going to do a bit of filming and... Um, and do all sorts of interesting things over the next few months, particularly keen on getting teachers involved because we had um, a great deal of pleasure doing that during lockdown and there's no reason why we shouldn't carry on with homeschooling-y kind of types of things. So looking forward to that. If you're a history teacher, um, do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, apologies. My initial thoughts, James. Interesting here. How are you happiest making an apology? How am I happiest making an apology? I'm an inveterate yeah. apology maker. I make apologies all the time. Quintessentially English. How am I happiest? I don't... I'm I'm happy when... Oh, I feel very... Uh, I'm not a conflict person. So I like to... You know, I need... I need to apologise and make things right. That's the... That's when I'm happiest. What I meant... Well, I know exactly what you're saying. That's good. But um, no, it's more to do with... Um... I assume it's more difficult face-to-face -face than it is writing a letter. And oh. I, I suspect that people shy away from this, right? So one of the interesting things about historical apologies in history is they're a wonderful, they're a wonderful historical source mm. because I suspect that there's a larger percentage of apologies have been written down than have been said. And that gives us a... Um, sort of a large vault of wonderful historical things to look into so it's like a sort of an essentially historical thing and it means there are some wonderful sources for it so that was my first thought what Ooh, do you think of that nice. I, I love that there's somebody who studies letters uh, the apologetics <laughs> of, of letter writing is right up my street yeah. but also think about them the sort of physicality of the apology you know groveling down on one's feet kissing Ooh. of you know kissing of feet you know, all of that kind of thing. I mean, that's obviously not where I'm most comfortable. I'm far more comfortable, you know, <laughs> sitting in an armchair, sort of apologising. No, no, no. I don't initially prostrate myself before somebody and grovel. Um, but grovelling is all about apologies. Where I started was um, was that I just think the English are quintessentially an apologising nation. We, I think we say sorry more than any, any other nation. Probably, maybe with the... You know, one other example being the Japanese who are you know, very, very polite. And it is part and parcel of our of our politeness. Um, there's a, a great book called Watching the English by a woman called Kate Fox, who's an anthropologist. And she's done a study of this. And she actually did an experiment where she was out in public bumping into people. This is what this is what anthropologists do. Encourage well, physically people, bumping in other country, people. Physically bu bumping into people and then... 80% of people or so would apologise to her for her bumping into them on purpose. <laughs> now, of course, what this means is that it doesn't mean that people are actually sorry, but what it means is that it is hardwired into our DNA to be 
apologetic, to apologise for things. Oh, I'm very sorry for bumping into you. I'm sorry that I'm asking you this, this question. And what is it about our national characteristic that means that we are are apologetic. I've been reading all sorts of things about this. Take, for example, how would you feel if you were in a very long queue, you were going, trying to catch a flight, trying to catch a plane, uh, you were trying to catch a train, something like that, and somebody just wanted to come in front of you? Um, how would you say if they, excuse me, get out my way, I'm in a rush, <laughs> and they sort of tried to get to the front of the queue? How would you feel, Sam Willis? Um, well, there are two answers to that. Uh, one is I'd be quite cross, but two, um, I'd be quite understanding because I've been in that situation mm. before. But if somebody came up with you and said, ah, you're the famous historical adventurer, Sam Willis, I can see you've been waiting in that queue for a long time. I'm so sorry, but my frail parent is at the other end of this flight and I need to get on, you know, desperately. And I have a child here that's sort of screaming and kicking. Would you please let me pass? Sorry, sorry, grovel, grovel. Would that make it sort of slightly easier for you to palate? Yeah, yes, yes, right, yes. I mean, if someone's got the got the nuts to actually decide to push through a queue, then then um, just let them do it. I suppose the other thing you could do is charge them, perhaps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, make money out of other people's misfortune <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry but i'm going to have to uh charge you 50 pounds for that um <laughs> yeah, just like <laughs> just like a budget airline <laughs> uh, yeah well, very good interesting stuff um yes the other thing i would that made me think about apologies was uh when you say we're good at apologizing the british are famously bad at apologizing in some things and um the coronation of king charles has kind of brought one of them to light and that's um slave trade the state sponsored as a state sponsored enterprise of the british there's been loads of stuff in the press about that um and it's interesting i mean if you look at it charles ii's fascinating so i mean he invested in the slave trading business it's the company of royal adventurers uh, of of England uh, trading into Africa and then James II he carries on doing the same thing um, he's actually the governor of the Royal African Company um, all, goes all the way to William IV 1830 to 1837 and um, even though slavery was abolished in 1833 he had always ab opposed abolition and it's one of these topics I think keeps coming up it's going to keep coming up um, I think it's fascinating because it's linked with politics as well so a lot of people in the very far right wing would see it as a kind of reverse racism and there's no there's no there's no reason or chance to um apologize for historic wrongs um the liberal side see it understandably completely differently and so that again is a very essentially historical thing because it's to do with different people's perception of the past um which is fascinating stuff it also raises the question of how far do you go back when you're doing historical apologies which i thought was interesting and um and who makes the decision? Is it like a politician who makes a decision or is it a historian? As a historian sitting here, I'd, I would have, I'm, I'm not sure I'd really want to actually put myself in that firing line and make that decision. So I think it's actually got to be a politician who makes a decision who does so under advice from historians. And it's been so much focus on the slave trade as something that everyone needs to apologise for. But of course, there are all sorts of other examples of genocide and war crimes, like the sacking of Constantinople by the, by the Crusaders. Um, or the burning of the Library of Alexandria by the Romans, whatever it might be. There are, um, you know, when do you, when do you go back? It's a bit of a can of worms, that, but um, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, that was where I was going with this, actually. Um, I read a really interesting article called The Power of Apology and the Process of Historical Reconciliation, which is all about these historical sort of apologies that are made. And, and yes, it, it is about things like, it is about things like slavery, 
colonialism. It's about racist policies, but it's also about religious prejudice. Think about how the Catholic Church has been atoning for for various things. Um, it's about you know complicity in the Holocaust and a whole range of politicians, particularly over the last sort of 20 years or so, have been stepping up to apologise for these kinds of things. And if you think about it, I suppose on the one side, you've got those people who are making the apologies. Those are the perpetrators. Those are the powerful countries that have been doing you know, wrong to people in the past. And then you've got the sort of the other side, which is the people who are being apologised to for sort of you know, human injustice, historic human injustice. And it's how how do they feel about that? How do they feel about uh, the apology? And the example I was going to use was a statement by the Japanese Prime Minister, uh, Tomichi Moriyama, uh, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Uh, and this was on the 15th of August, 1995. And for decades after the end of the Second World War, the Japanese didn't formally apologise. And then you have this sort of formal apology, which I just wanted to read. The world has seen 50 years elapse since the war came to an end. Now, when I remember the many people, both at home and abroad, who fell victim to war, my heart is overwhelmed by a flood of emotions. The peace and prosperity of today were built as Japan overcame great difficulty to arise from a devastated land after defeat in the war. That achievement is something of which we are proud. And let me herein express my heartfelt admiration for the wisdom and untiring effort of each and every one of our citizens. Let me also express once again my profound gratitude for the indispensable support and assistance extended to Japan by the countries of the world, beginning with the United States of America. I am also delighted that we've been able to build the friendly relations which we enjoy today with the neighbouring countries of the Asian Pacific region, the United States and the countries of Europe. Now that Japan has come to enjoy peace and abundance, we tend to overlook the pricelessness and blessings of peace. Our task is to convey to younger generations the horrors of war so that we never repeat the errors of our history. I believe that as we join hands, especially with the peoples of neighbouring countries, to ensure true peace in the Asia-Pacific region, indeed in the entire world, it is necessary more than anything else that we foster relations with all countries based on deep understanding and trust. And so it goes on to say that they've set up this peace and friendship exchange initiative and it goes on to sort of talk about in greater sort of terms of contrition but ends by saying it is said that one can rely on good faith and so at this time of remembrance I declare to the people of Japan and abroad my intention to make good faith the foundation of our government policy and this is my vow. So as I said before you know they were decades after the Second World War, that the Japanese government didn't give a sort of formal apology like that. And this comes in 1995 and goes down incredibly well, particularly in those sort of Asian countries. There are also other examples of this. Chirac, for example, Jacques Chirac, who was president of France in 1995, apologises for the way in which France sent hundreds of thousands of Jews to concentration camps during uh, the Second World War. Or in 1997, President Bill Clinton issuing an apology for which which basically were related to the, and I hadn't heard of this, Tuskegee uh, study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. And this is basically where 
medical researchers recruited hundreds of African-American males, promising them that they would have free health care. But underlying that was the idea that they would study the long-term effects of untreated syphilis. Uh, on these men. So Clinton stands up and apologises for this. So th- it's basically, the, it's, a, it's a historical phenomenon of, of countries, of presidents, of people apologising for past wrongs. And this is done in all sorts of ways. It's probably done in letter, as you, as you talked about, in speeches, but it's also done in terms of reparations. So paying people money for things that you know, have have been have happened in the past. You can also see it in rituals, in ceremonies, days of observance, monuments, memorials, um, you know, renaming parts of the landscape. So there we have it, Sam. The unexpected history of apologies is all about political contrition for historic wrong. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? There are so many different ways you can take that. Whether I mean, I mentioned the Battle of the um, Treaty of Versailles at the beginning, so apologising for the First World War, Germany made to pay reparations of 132 billion gold marks, and that was in you know that's at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but th- that didn't come out of uh, the blue. Um, Napoleon was actually uh, uh, France was was forced to pay after the Battle of Waterloo. Treaty of Paris in 1815. Uh, the Gulf War is a very interesting one as well um, uh, because it leads to um, the United Nations Compensation Commission being set up. 
Um, and it's not just wars. There are other examples um, recently, um, uh, which are, um, well, there's the environmental, essentially, environmental damage, deep water horizon, huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico 2010, um, $20 billion uh, they had to pay there. But anyway, I was going to talk about Edgar Allan Poe, because I like talking about Edgar Allan Poe, and he's the kind of person that always gets himself into slight pickles. Have you ever had to apologise for being drunk, James? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> You don't Me want too. to know. You don't want to know that. Uh, and also, a, also a historical issue. Um, I certainly had to apologise to my mother when I was younger. Quite oh, a me, lot. My, my father. I was when I was fourteen. I went. Yeah, we didn't want to. I had <laughs> no, to clean out. I had to cool. clean out a car, basically. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Um, so all of you listeners, um, have, have a little think back to what you might have done in the past and apologise to yourself or <laughs> apologise to those people you need to apologise to. If you did not apologise at the time, um, it made this quite an uncomfortable uh, episode to think about. And right. Um, but luckily, I managed to focus on someone who wasn't me. So Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> I've spoken about him before. Uh, he's one of my favourite people in history. He's fascinating. Um, he basically invented detective fiction. He kind of invented science fiction. He certainly invented short stories. Um, if you have not read a historical author and you focus on mod- modern authors, I've got no problem with that. So I love reading uh, a modern modern novelist. But um, every now and again, it's good to delve into the past. James, I know you're a, fa- a big fan of the Dickens. Le- read some Alan Poe. Read some short stories because they're completely extraordinary. Uh, I want to read you a letter written in 1842. It's fascinating. It's written by Poe to two publishers, J and H.G. Langley. They uh, Publishers live in New York and they publish something called the Democratic Review, um, which doesn't sound like the kind of publication you'd have an Edgar Allan Poe short story in. Um, but that in itself tells us something about the state of American publishing in the 1840s and all of these authors trying to get published in these very dry-sounding, nonsensey kind of uh, reviews and pamphlets, very different from what it is today or what it was, you know, even at the beginning of the 20th century. Edgar Allan Poe doesn't live in New York. He's been to New York and he's been there to, to try and chat up these publishers. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe got absolutely hammered <laughs> and wrote this letter. <laughs> Gentlemen, enclosed, I have the honour to send you an article which I should be pleased if you would accept for the Democratic Review. I'm desperately pushed for money. And in the event of Mr O'Sullivan's liking the landscape garden, I would take it as an especial favour if you would mail me the amount due for it so as to reach me here by the 21st, in which day I shall need it. Can you possibly oblige me in this? If you accept the paper, I presume you will allow me your usual terms, whatever that is, for similar contributions. But I set no price, leaving all to your own liberality. Will you be so kind enough to put the best possible interpretation upon my behaviour whilst in New York? You must have conceived a queer idea of me, but the simple truth is that Wallace would insist upon the juleps, and I knew not what I was either doing or saying. The review of Dawes, which I offered you, was deficient in half a page of commencement, which I had written to supersede the old beginning, which gave the article the character of a general and introspective view. No wonder you did not take it. I should have been very much mortified if you had. I hope to see you at some future time under better auspices. In the meantime, I remain yours very truly, Edgar Allan 
po. So to letter that's split into two, the first bit he's begging for money. Um, and that is interesting. He doesn't put any price on um, what he's created. He's just hoping to be paid a little bit. He's completely in the control of agents and publishers. Very interesting period in American publishing where uh, the authors had very few legs to stand on. And the second stage, he's apologising, but he's only sort of apologising. Because what he does is he apologises about his drunkenness, but blames it on someone else. You must what he said, you must have conceived a queer idea of me. But the simple truth is that Wallace would insist on the juleps. And the juleps is a kind of, um, it's like a, a very sweet alcoholic drink. Um, so uh, it's, it's a wonderful story. Um, and it's interesting when he then talks about the review of Doors. So he's also obviously written a review of a poet and in his drunkenness has failed to complete it. He's handed it in. It's missing the front page. It's all a bit of a state. Um, so how do we use this? It's, it's a lovely little letter and it raises one question, which is um, about Poe's use and abuse of alcohol, which is also uh, part and parcel of a broad story of Poe's use and abuse of opium, which in turn is interesting because he's become known as an as an alcoholic and and a drug addict but that's i think perhaps slightly unfair on the reality of how he actually went about his life and so it's more i think to do with the perception of historical creatives in particular whether they're drug addicts alcoholics there are other um other criticisms you can level at them, um, and anti-Semitism, very common one, like Roald Dahl, Richard Wagner, another one as well, so musicians as well. Um, and how do we fit that into our perception of people of the past, whether they're anti-Semites, whether they're drug addicts, whether they're alcoholics? And it certainly does affect um, the way people are perceived, and it affects our understanding and our interest, I think, in their creativity. It's also a fascinating period, as I said, into American publishing in the 1840s. Um, it really does change, and authors are allowed to um, receive a bit more money for what they do. It was something I was uh, personally very interested in. And um, a fascinating period in Poe's life as well. Um, you have a a extraordinarily creative person here just scrabbling to survive and um, very much living on the edge. So for me, apologies in this case is all about real or perceived use of narcotics by creatives such as Edgar Allan Poe and the development of the American publishing industry in the 1840s. Oh, that's a lovely connection there, Sam. Uh, he's written a lot, hasn't he? I've been Googling it up as we... Uh, Murders of Rue Morgue. Uh, in the Rue Morgue, uh, the Purloined Letter, the Pit and the Pendulum. So a lot of sort of very famous short stories. People should check out Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I was very struck Absolutely. by the Eurovision song about Poe, Poe, Poe. Did you not see that? The the no, Ed didn't Edgar see Allan. Oh, there was there was one about Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I thought that was where your inspiration had come from, but obviously not. Um, my final uh, example is also connected to letters and. It connects and it, and it carries itself an apology because it's a return to my own work on letter writing uh, and Tudor women letter writers. Um, so for me, uh, the history of apologies is about Tudor letter writing and politeness in Tudor England. Because one of the things that you find is that in 16th century letters, 
people are so apologetic and they are apologetic about their own incapacity, inability to write. So within women's letters in particular, you've got an enormous number of women who are apologising for their scribbled lines or their rude writing. And that doesn't mean impolite writing, but it basically means crude in terms of how it is sort of put together. Um, and it's a really striking feature of letters during this period. So if we take, for example, the Duchess of Richmond, she referred to her evil hand. The Countess of Westmoreland craved pardon from William Lord Burley for what she described as her disordered and scribbled lines. And so it goes on. And Lady Cobham apologised for her illegible lines while the Duchess of Suffolk wrote, I am ashamed to send you such an blurred letter, but it is like the matter, and I pray you bear with both at this time, for a grieved heart made a shaking hand. Elizabeth Mansell described herself to Nathaniel Bacon as as ill a clerk as ever writ. And it's not just it's not just women who did this, it's also men uh, who apologised for this kind of thing. And it's really striking, not only in letters, but also in print uh, for women. Um, you know, women apologising for their making sort of self-deprecating marks in their published writing. Um, but as I said, it's, it's also men who use it. Um, so Philip Gordy writes to his father expressing that I am to desire you that this rude scribbled letter may suffice for this present with a remembrance of my duty to your good self. And Edward Lord Zouche, I love that name. Have you ever heard mm. of Edward Lord Zouche? Edward Lord Zouche implored the Countess of Warwick's pardon for my defects by these rude lines. Now, in some cases... It is because people simply can't write <laughs> and they are apologising <laughs> because their handwriting is so appalling and it's all over the place. But it is also a demeanour of false modesty by women and by men. And with men, it is about, it's about registering their social inferiority. So it is a social inferior writing to a superior and it's part of being deferential. It's the equivalent to sort of getting down on your knees uh, and apologising. But with women, it's slightly more it's slightly more difficult to explain. Um, some of it is around their sort of perceived in intellectual inferiority, but it's also quite willful and it's uh, projecting an aura of vulnerability and humility to male recipients for strategic effect um take for example lady anne newdigate um who is in all of her letters of petitioning where she's asking for things is presenting herself as a as a sort of a woman who lacks skill in being able to write and it's symptomatic of nothing more than politeness lady jane gray for example uh writes to the the reformation theologian henry bullinger uh I entertain the hope that you will excuse the more than feminine boldness of me, who, girlish and unlearned as I am, presume to write to a man who is the father of learning, that you will pardon that rudeness which has made me not hesitate to interrupt your more important occupations with my vain trifles and puerile correspondence. I mean, basically what you have is a powerful royal princess <laughs> you know, getting in touch with... Uh, with a sort of leading uh, religious thinker. So there we are, Sam. The unexpected history of apologies is all about women's letter writing and being polite in Tudor England.
James, fascinating stuff. Um, as ever, we're ending with a bit of Tudor history, which I always <laughs> love. Sorry. <laughs> um, sorry. Sorry, everyone. Uh, thank you all for listening, everyone. Um, nice to be back. We're going to come back uh, again very soon. Indeed, we're doing a episode on homesickness which i thought was going to be quite sweet and quite fun and then i think we might do one on nonchalance after that or perhaps we'll do them uh, record them both together in the same day excellent sounds good well thank you all so much for listening please uh, follow me on social media i'm at dr sam willis and you can follow the podcast at unexpected pod you can follow me at james dable we are also all over instagram and facebook so come and make friends with us there check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com and we will be on youtube i think um will we be on youtube i think we will well we definitely will and we've got some cool animations there to look at as well but um you'll actually be able to see us in the sheds so let's uh, let's look forward to that and thank you all for listening bye bye guys Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.